We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Liz Russell booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML, a news conference in uh, held by the uh, Ontario Premier Ford uh, talking about pediatrics and health care and, and what we need to do in order to speed things up. Uh, now Ontario boosting pediatric health care funding by $330 million a year. Uh, the idea here is to get things going, uh, make sure people avoid ER uh, lineups, uh, respiratory virus season, uh, wait times, mental health services, immunization catch-up, all of that. Here's what the Premier had to say. Initiatives include hiring more staff to do more surgeries for our children and youth so we can further reduce wait times, more rapid access clinics to divert children and youth away from busy emergency rooms during flu season. We know that when your child gets sick, the last thing you want to deal with is a backlog list or a wait list. You want care and you want it fast. So anyway, uh, playing that, because obviously, uh, usually when we're talking healthcare, it's a negative. There's a positive. Uh, and, and what the heck, we need uh, as many of those as we can. Uh, other stuff that is going on. This is uh, this is kind of interesting, and I stumbled upon this today, and um, and and it was interesting because initially I was uh, you know talking about the housing and the green belt issue. Uh, you know, I, I find it absolutely fascinating that uh, there's a group of people, politicians, who are screaming about the green belt, and I don't want to invade the green belt, and it's there for a reason. Blah 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 blah. Um, but when, you know, this issue comes out, they say, well, there's lots of usable land. Well, where is it? And if there's usable land, which, of course, there is, but the municipalities don't want to unlock that. Uh, but, yeah, there's like at least 20 years uh, worth of, of, of product out there. But the municipalities, NIMBYism, it's not getting done. So people say, don't invade the green belt. There's other alternatives. Well, if there was other alternatives, we wouldn't have a housing problem. We wouldn't have a housing crisis. So it's amazing that we have counselors like Ted McMeekin saying they're going to sit in front of bulldozers. When we have a housing shortage that prior to the pandemic, we've known about for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. 20 years, at least. Ask any academic who follows this stuff. So, as I've said before, this is a self-inflicted problem between environmentalists who don't want to build neighborhoods and the NIMBYism who, and let's be honest, the housing crisis can't be solved by all infield building. It's a combination of all of this. But these people that are screaming and yelling now are responsible for the problem. This is a self-inflicted wound because we haven't been building enough. It's amazing. And now, you know, uh, uh, Ted McMeekin on with Rick Zamperin this morning said we got to get things right. Here's an 18-year an liberal MPP, former. When do you get things right? When they're threatening to open up the green belt because nobody's built anything? You're going to sit in front of a bulldozer? 
and stop somebody who's trying to make a living? Why not go sit in front of the people who are camping in parks and try to explain to them why there's a housing shortage? And please don't blame it on all of the developers. The reason Canada is in the shape, it's developers. Are you kidding me? It's lack of leadership at the provincial and and the municipal levels for decades. Not in my backyard. Don't want to build that there. Well, we can't go into that farmland. That's grade A. Yet we're going to invite a half a million new immigrants every year. Where are we putting them? We're going to stack them up like cordwood in a vacant parking lot, hoping it becomes an apartment or affordable housing. And, you know, people are complaining about the strong mayor powers. That was developed for one reason, to move this stuff along. Not to sit in front of bulldozers. It's to finally get, we all need hope. We we all need to be kind. We all need to do all of that stuff. But we also got to get shovels in the ground and start what we've screwed up for the last 5, 10, 20 years. And it's amazing. You don't build. That equals a housing shortage. And they're giving the mayors strong powers to get through this CAC. Let me read you something from the Toronto Star. February 26, 2008. This is the headline in the Toronto Star. Premier wants strong mayor. That's the headline. Toronto's councillors should seriously consider giving the mayor more powers so he can get the city on track and keep it there, said Premier Dalton McGuinty. A more powerful mayor was one of the key recommendations in last week's report by an outside panel that looked at ways to put the city on a better financial footing. It's really, it's a really important opportunity for council to give the mayor of the day the authority he needs to, or she, I guess now, to exercise leadership on behalf of Toronto. I think that's lacking at this point in time, McGinty told reporters. February 26th, 2008. What has been done since? So don't give me this crap about you're going to sit in front of a bulldozer. You go down and sit in front of those people camped in parks who can't afford a home. You go sit in front of a young couple who've worked hard, got an education and a good job and can't afford a home. You sit in front of them and protest like it's the 1970s all over again. I'm tired of this crap. Around and around. It's all the developers' fault. Will use your leverage and manipulate the developer. My God, leadership, leadership, leadership. Enough of hope. Hope doesn't get the whole dug. We've, I don't know, every so often you kind of just have to take a break away from the uh, Donald Trump stuff because it just keeps, it's sort of like a merry-go-round. It just keeps going around and round and round and round. However, uh, ears are starting to peak again as the former U.S. president says he is the target. In a, uh, he is a target in the federal January 6th investigation, apparently receiving a target letter, which basically, uh, is, uh, uh, well, I'll let Reggie explain what it is. Reggie Giacchini with his Washington correspondent for Global News. He is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon. 
So update us here, Reggie. Apparently a target letter. What has happened? Yeah, look, and this is not the first time the former president has faced a target letter. This happened uh, a couple of weeks before he was indicted uh, in the situation linked to the allegations of mishandled classified documents. Here we have the former president again coming out ahead of the U.S. Department of Justice to say that a grand jury that has been investigating everything linked to January 6th here in Washington, D.C. is honing in or zeroing in on the former president's connection to not just what took place on January 6th and and kind of the the lead up and aftermath of the attack, but the overall uh, allegations of interference into the 2020 election. And the former president says that he believes that um, an indictment and an arrest is is coming. And if past precedent plays a role here, that's very likely going to be true. Why do they send you a letter ahead of time to tell you this? Well, look, this is just how the Department uh, of Justice operates. They send the target letter here, and and most of the time, this target letter uh, lays out what the statutes are that the Justice Department is looking at. And from what we understand from reporting uh, is that the the statute lays out that they are looking at areas having to do with conspiracy uh, and deprivation of rights, uh, as well as obstruction, uh, obstructing a, an official proceeding. But also, this target letter affords the person according to legal experts, an opportunity to come and testify before the grand jury. Donald Trump did not do that uh, last time around in the documents uh, case. He only has until tomorrow to respond. You get four days to testify in D.C. It's likely that's not going to happen, meaning that there's a real chance if an indictment is going to come from this, Scott, that it could happen as early as tomorrow. So then what after that? Well, then... Uh, we find ourselves in another media spectacle, in another legal spectacle, and another political spectacle, all having to do with actions uh, that were carried out likely at the hands of uh, the former president. If uh, an indictment uh, does take place, the venue is likely going to be Washington, D.C., because uh, if it has to do with election interference and, and events leading up to January 6th, uh, this all took place in and around the White House. Uh, so there's a courthouse just down the street from where I am right now. Uh, that the former president would have to come to. And we would find ourselves in that same situation of the president having to be booked and the president having to be arraigned and processed uh, on whatever charges uh, the Justice Department ultimately decides to come to if the indictment comes and if charges come. But, but this is another kind of legal obstacle and political hurdle that the former president uh, has to run through uh, as he sits as the front runner in the, the kind of Republican race, uh, the primary race, as he tries to kind of wind up back in the White House again. So the first time, as you said, um, uh, this is in, it was in regard to the files and boxes of files. This time it's the January 6th issue. So uh, this appears to be a lot more serious than the first. Is that accurate? It, 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 there, there's more severity to this. Uh, there's also more public interest in this. And there is also a real possibility here that this could work more in the government's favor, uh, especially if the venue is Washington, D.C. Look, in the last election when Donald Trump was running in D.C., 5% of the population voted for uh, the former president. So there is likely going to be a more kind of, you know, non-Trump friendly jury, even though juries have to be uh, impartial at this point. Uh, but this is serious. And look, this investigation into January 6th, again, it stems a whole bunch of different avenues. This is not just the attack. This is the the attempts to overturn the 2020 results. This is the attempt to get 
uh, state level secretaries of state uh, to change their results. This is, a, you know, the attempt to have fake electors put in place. So there are a broad number of areas that the that the special counsel investigating this could be going down uh, in order to, um, you know, figure out whatever charges they want to be. And ultimately, remember, this led to an attack on the U.S. Capitol, which had um, a public safety aspect to it as well. So, you know, this is a big deal. Yes, the documents were a big deal. There are sensitive government documents there. But this case ultimately goes to the heart of what the foundation of this country is, and that is American democracy. And that was threatened with the, you know, refusal to give into a peaceful transfer of power, which ultimately led to lies about the election, which ultimately led to an attack on the Capitol. It seems Donald uh, Trump's life is just one giant perpetual court case. It just keeps rolling and rolling. Are the walls closing in or is this just more of the same? Because obviously the charges are more serious. Well, look, there's two different ways to look at this. Number one, the former president is still uh, kind of flourishing with a hefty number uh, of people that are supporting him. There was Ipsos polling that came out within the last 24 hours, and he's still sitting between 47 and 50 percent support within the Republican Party. But as the primary season starts to go through, uh, there's a real chance. I was talking to a political expert earlier today. There's a real chance that Trump could start to lose some of that support. He still has to deal with a court case in the documents matter. He has a likely court case coming up now in this January 6th matter. There are still ongoing investigations uh, that have to go to the state level in Georgia that could lead to a, a fourth indictment. This could all have an impact on Trump's ability to maintain support. And even if he ultimately wins uh, you know, primary season and becomes top of the ticket, he could be, according to political experts, a weakened candidate, and that could provide a big win here for Joe Biden next year, even though his popularity numbers are down as well. So yes, the walls are closing in on Trump. He will fundraise off this. He will see a bit of a political boost. The big question here is, as these walls close in, does that allow for the people that he's running against in the Republican Party uh, Mm. to create their own avenue and start running down that to ostracize Trump? Or do they find themselves having to defend him again, fearful that not defending him could, you know, turn the base away from them and cost them valuable votes later on down the road. This this is there's a lot to think about here, uh, more so for the former president, though, as you say, with the walls closing in. Yeah, you got to ask, um, you know, at what point do you ask yourself, gee, is there nobody better that can do this for us? Uh, you, we talked about the fundraising. That was my next question. Obviously, this is a fundraising opportunity for Donald Trump. Any idea how much, like how big of a boost does he get when something like this happens? Well, look, last time around, millions and millions and millions of dollars were raised, uh, both on the fundraising side online, uh, in the kind of wake of the indictment. And then the night that he was arraigned, he brought in millions and millions of dollars more at an event. Uh, in New Jersey. And just last night, uh, the first fundraising email came out from the Trump campaign. So, you know, as it has been before it goes again, he is going to try to monetize himself uh, or monetize the campaign on his own legal perils while calling himself a victim of kind of government weaponization. You know, importantly, the White House is staying um, quiet. They are remaining, you know, uh, keeping independence between the White House and the Department of Justice. But you know, the campaign for Trump is rolling through this. They are going to try to bankroll as much as they can. The question is, how much more money are people willing to give to the former president if he continuously finds himself in these political problems, which have no sign of slowing down, considering there are ongoing investigations far and beyond what we've already talked about? 
Reggie Giacchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Former U.S. President uh, receiving a target letter, charges pending. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Lots of chatter. We've been talking an awful lot about people living in tents and on streets and uh, people who have worked hard, got an education, have a good job, still cannot afford to buy a house. And like any crisis that happens, when it does, it affects those on the lower end uh, more severely than everyone else, which is why we are seeing what we are. But this problem goes right the way across demographics, right the way across social economic uh, uh, boundaries. It, it's affecting everybody. So uh, now we have council, and it appears the province uh, opposing development on the green belt, yet really not providing solutions. And honestly, if they were, we wouldn't be here by now. Let's bring in Mark Tattison, Ward 11 City Councilor, City of Hamilton, in here now. Mark, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, God. Thanks for having me on the show. So where are we on this, Mark? I mean, you, you know, uh, there's lots of people that say don't be touching the green belt, but they're sort of ignoring the people that are living in tents, say there's other alternatives, yet we haven't seen these. And it's it, this has been happening. This has been going on prior to the pandemic for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, where are we on this? Well, Scott, um, that's an interesting take. I think we have got lots of other lands that we can develop on right now. Um, we've got 37,000 units in various stages of approval across the city. Across the city. I think that represents, um, when I think about this, so over 10 years of housing supply needs as forecast. So we have many thousands of units that could be developed on property. So why are they not, we, we know this, Mark, but why is this in the, isn't this happening? Because if it was happening, if it was happening, we wouldn't have a shortage because at the end of the day, there's a housing shortage and that's had a myriad of problems, including the ones we're talking about. So uh, why have we not done that? And if we're doing it, why are we feeling a shortage? Well, that's a good question. Through my understanding, it's like, you know, as we as we do the intensification in infill and, and uh, redevelopment, we're going to put we're going to put all that vacant property to use below and above the mountain. Um, you know, we've got we've got projects in the works. And again, from the city's point of view um, and the city's perspective, there's no hold up from our end. Um, we have record levels of housing development in just in the last two years. And that goes for. Um, you know, just last week, we approved over 1,300 new units, and that's like detached homes, townhomes. Um, that's great, Mark. That's years. great. That's great. And I don't mean to be glib, but that's in the last two years once the pandemic hit and this was slapping us in the face like the health care issue. Uh, why? How did we get here? Why has this not been done prior to the pandemic five, 10, 15, 20 years ago? Because the research has been done. The planning's been done. The immigration numbers, we all know what they are. So now you're playing catch-up and you're arguing about a green belt. So, again, and I don't mean to be, to be negative no, here, be but... You can be as good as you want, Scott. No, I, I, don't, I, don't mean to be, I, I don't mean to be... Development. No, but it, listen, it, listen, if there's hold-up or hesitation in development, I'd, if I was you, I would look at market conditions, cost of materials, lack of skilled labor, interest rates at 5% <laughs> right now. So, so those are things that are happening now. The city, as far as I know, and as far as I'm concerned, this, and, and, and I'm new to this gig, but the city has done lots. Um, you know, the city's always 
ready for growth. The city's always planning for growth. You know, they pre-zoned <clears throat> intensification downtown. They pre-zoned for SDUs. They pre-zoned for base. Then we shouldn't have a shortage, Mark. Then we shouldn't have a shortage. There is. Again, I think the shortage in housing is due to market conditions right now. Developers and contractors are facing inflation. Cost of builds have skyrocketed. Their prices are too high for what the market um, dictates at 5% interest rates. Builders and developers don't want to take on and carry debt in those conditions. So some people are mothballing their projects. The public isn't willing to pay $900,000 anymore for a three-bedroom townhouse with 5% mortgage. You know, it's just not, it's just not going to cut. With all due respect, Mark, yeah, all, of this, all of this existed before the pandemic. And much like health care, it's just the pandemic put it to stress and the weak links broke. So this isn't, a, uh, this isn't an issue that just happened with market changes in the last two years. This has been going on for 5, 10, 15, 20 years prior to the pandemic. Well, if you look at the interest rates, people were willing to pay more as developers charged more because the interest rates were at 1% and 2%. No one's going to pay that now at 5%. So that's one of the issues for building at that level. We also need to build housing that's going to be taken for people that want to use it, right? So for me, when, when, and, and you wanted to talk about building in the green belt, Building in the green belt for me is Premier Ford's folly. You know, first, re- let me restate that we do not need the green belt lands to meet our housing demand. Um, so you haven't means- met them so far, though, Mark. You haven't met them so far. And I know no, you're new to the gig. That. I know you're new to the gig, but I've been on the planet for 60 years. We've heard it all a million times. And it was the same thing with health care. The rubber has hit the road. So you can't sit and tell Hamiltonians you got it under control because people are living in tents. People are living in tents, and that's definitely related because the situation is that, is that we have rent evictions. Or, yeah, we have rent evictions happening. People are under stress because of the economy. Um, it's stressed it to the point where people and and again there's there's situations where people are being renovated um they're, they're they're being placed you know all of a sudden you have to make a choice between food or your home you know so so those are stresses that that are beyond the level like a shouldn't we be concentrating more on that mark than the green belt and doug ford's folly i mean honestly people have had enough of the politics it hasn't happened and and we don't have houses and that's why we have a shortage um, you know, again, well, I, we're again, out of time. We have, I, I, so, we have five. We, like I said, we have thirty. We have thirty-seven thousand units yeah. in the in the in 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 the process at various stages of development. You can't tell me that the green belt is going to solve the problem, like Doug Ford's saying. We have to you look can, at, oh, you know, you want, let's turn that argument around, Mark. We you care more about you care that. more about green belts than you do homeless people. You care oh, more God, about who is living. That. You, you care more about somebody developing the green belt than you do that, that people are sleeping in tents. It's because so nobody has exactly, built any houses. To me exactly no, everybody, what everybody. What Mark, I got to let you go. It is. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Mark. Mark uh, Tattison, Ward 11 City Councilor, uh, City of Hamilton. Don't mean to be mean. Don't mean to be aggressive. But, man, we've heard all this before. And uh, it's time that we actually get some progress. 
If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. As well as the obvious housing shortage that we're seeing in tent cities, in towns, and in, in, in cities, big and small across the land, Toronto has seen an influx of asylum seekers and refugees. The Premier and the Mayor of Toronto are teaming up to demand for more help from the federal government. They answered that uh, with just under $100 million the other day for uh, crisis uh, for this crisis situation. Let's bring in Usha George, Professor, Academic Director, Toronto Metropolitan Centre for Immigration and Settlement, Toronto Metropolitan University, and with us now. Usha, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, sure. Yes, thank you. So what are your thoughts on where we are right now? Before we discuss how we got to the situation with what we saw happening on the streets of Toronto um, uh, with, with people looking for services and such, uh, what are your thoughts in regard to uh, the immigration? We all know we need more coming in because we need uh, the job, uh, jobs that need to be filled. Uh, we've been talking for the last couple of years about increasing immigration rates. Then all of a sudden, boom, we get, uh, you know, post-pandemic uh, a housing crisis. Uh, should we hit pause on this for a bit until things settle down a bit? Should we keep going? I'm not saying one extreme or the other, but... Uh, should we be should we be tapping the brake here? Yeah. Okay. So this is a very complex problem. Uh, people who are familiar with the Canadian immigration system know fully well that the immigration system works with different classes. So we talk about three classes of immigration, which is economic class, family class, and the refugee class. The refugee class is the smallest of the lot, and usually government refugees come into the country by uh, from approval from UNHCR. They could be privately sponsored, government sponsored. Having said that, you know, this is the official channel through which people come. But then there are unofficial channels, which is basically border crossing or overstaying your visitor's visa. So mm-hmm. to answer your question, so stopping the economic stream is not going to help the refugee crisis. Stopping the family stream is not going to get the uh, sorry to to address the crisis. We have to address, in my opinion, the source of this issue. Where do these refugees come from? Again, my understanding is that government-sponsored and privately-sponsored refugees are given a one-year um, uh, refugee assistance uh, uh, package, which includes money and a number of other resources. So if they ran out of that and are unable to get uh, jobs that can manage uh, that they can manage with, that becomes a problem. But still, government-sponsored refugees, I am told, have recourse to uh, social assistance. None of the in this particular case. If they don't have enough money to pay for housing, they become technically homeless. That's one source of this crisis. The other is that that people can overstay their visitors' visas here. So they come in to say, I'm sitting for three hours, three months, and then they stay here. People who have ran out of their work permits, they stay here. So And then people who cross illegally through, uh, you know, the... Roxham Road route and many other uh, illegal crossings. 
these are people who are called particularly the ones illegal crossings are called asylum seekers mm-hmm. they do not become refugees the the government border officials uh, uh, do interview these people to ensure that their claims are valid that their life will be in danger and that too that us will not admit them because we have a safe third country agreement with us which has kind of strengthened recently after Joe Biden's uh, visit and we closed that Roxham Road uh, route to come to Canada but in any case last year nearly 40,000 people crossed the border at the end of that that Roxham Road so i'm talking about uh, a, a, and and out of these people not everybody gets to be called a a a asylum seeker those whose claims are not seen as valid are put in detention centers and they are supposed to go back we really um, don't know how many of them are allowed to get out on the streets but they are not supposed to be asylum seekers so these asylum seekers are the ones who are approved by the border agencies to say yes their asylum has some kind of an issue but still they have to go through a government hearing and all of that so again as you sorry No go ahead. So to answer your question we really don't know where what is the source of these numbers they are all adding up in a way and of course the the refugee housing system is is in high mm-hmm. demand there is a 440% jump since September 2021 September 2021 we had about 537 people who wanted to want the shelters but now so about- usha we know that that you know uh, the refugee claims are are just one part of the pro- uh, problem but right. the housing shortage affects everybody and in is right the way across the board so right. again my question is you know yeah. should we be pausing this or slowing it down a little bit until we can get the housing situation at least to a manageable situation right. uh for those that can afford their own and come over to get one i mean there still is no housing here for these those that are in the same position here so is this something we should be we should be mindful of okay so i was going to come to that housing situation because the shelters are are overflowing with people and of course there is the money issue and so on but to to halt what are we halting people are already here We are not allowing new people. You know, Roxham Road is closed and many other... No, but there's still... It's got nothing to do with Roxham Road. I mean, they're still uh, scheduled to do up to a half a million immigrants uh, a year. So oh. they're not already here. There's more scheduled to come in. So should we be pausing that? Yeah. They are not the kind of immigrants who would be sleeping on the streets. They no, but they're still going to need a house, Usha. It doesn't matter if they're not... Even if they're well-educated, they're still going to need a house, of which there's a shortage of. Yeah, but then the the kind of housing that these economic immigrants, economic class immigrants are looking for are not the kind of housing that that uh, that uh, that the refugees are looking for. In other words, they are looking for different kinds of housing, mainly because of affordability crisis. Economic immigrants, which forms about sixty five percent of Canada's immigrants, um, do uh, have to provide uh, 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 you know solid. Um, Uh, what do i say funding uh, uh, you know with them before they apply before they come here so, so in other words so in other words it doesn't matter what the housing situation is here 
uh, even if like, lots of people can afford houses, they just don't have them because there's a shortage. So that's uh, that was my point. But Usha, yeah. we're completely out of time. Usha George yeah. with us, Professor, Academic Director, Toronto Metropolitan Center for Immigration and Settlement at Toronto Metropolitan University. Thank you. 900 CHML, it's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The Premier and the Toronto Mayor are teaming up and uh, asking for more help for asylum seekers and refugees on the streets of Toronto. Obviously, the federal government announced just the other day just under $100 million to help this problem uh, and help them get through the next year. Let's bring in Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief, Global News, and with us now. Colin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon, sir. Thank you for having me. So I guess, Colin, the Premier and the Toronto Mayor can work together. <laughs> We're see- What are we seeing here? Yeah, you know, this is this is uh, surprising in in terms of the speed at which the the two have kind of come together on a on a shared priority. And the politics of this are really interesting as well. I mean, who would have thought that the the Prime Minister and the Mayor of Toronto would be at odds, and the Mayor of Toronto and the Premier of Ontario would actually be working hand in glove to uh, put pressure on the federal government. I mean, this is this is kind of a messy situation here. But what the Ford government is saying, along with the city of Toronto, is they want to uh, put a little bit more money into the Canada-Ontario housing benefit. This benefit, it's basically a monthly housing allowance for people who live in low-income households to help with their their housing costs? It's um it's it's a, a a subsidy program essentially that goes to the individual. It doesn't it's not it doesn't stay with the unit. It goes with the individual from whatever unit you move to, and it helps pay the cost of rent. And so, in order to deal with the uh, asylum seeker issue that you've been seeing all over this uh, the news in Toronto. You know, both the uh, province of Ontario and the city of Toronto are jointly putting in about $13 million into this Canada-Ontario housing benefit. They say about 1,300 people or 1,300 families, depending on how many people live in that household, would be assisted by this program. And now they're putting the screws to the federal government saying, hey, you know, you should also be pitching in even more money uh, into this fund to help out, you know, uh, even more people. Uh, who who would rely on this on this fund? It, it really is an interesting dynamic, but it's the first sign of this relationship between Doug Ford and Olivia Chow, showing that just like with Hamilton's Mayor Andrea Horvath, that they can work together even though they are on opposite sides of the political spectrum. So we heard earlier, Colin. Obviously, the federal government gave just under a hundred million dollars for this. Is this on top of that? This would be on top of that. So so this is a separate you know, spend from the Ontario government and the city of Toronto to kind of you know help bolster the situation you're here, right? Because ultimately there are asylum seekers who are coming to Toronto. It is in the city of Toronto's view, the federal government's responsibility to look after them. But the federal government has said, no, actually, you know, dealing with uh, the shelter system where they feel like these asylum seekers should be going is more of a provincial and a municipal responsibility. There is a lot of finger pointing over this issue, but ultimately all three levels of government are coming to the table with some level of cash. And that is a good thing. The question is now sustainability, right? Uh, More people will potentially look at this and say, okay, well, if there's a well of cash, maybe Toronto and Ontario is a place to go. uh, If you're looking for refuge or asylum, but where is the money going to come from in the long run to help house all of these people? And that's where the the province and the uh, the city are 
coming together for its one-time funding, but at least this cash infusion may, in their view, put a little bit more pressure on the federal government to come to the table with even more money. And we're not talking about, I mean, here's the thing. We're not talking about millions, uh, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. We're talking about like 26 million, uh, 13 mm. million. You know, this this to these levels of government is really small change. Uh, and the, the the money that the feds gave er, gave earlier, that is just to sustain the program that's already in place for another year. Is that what that's about? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, th- these are we're talking about short term cash infusions. And this is why now the conversation is slowly pivoting to a larger, longer term solution. And it's not just the city of Toronto. Other municipalities are saying that they are going to either start seeing or are seeing these similar types of issues. And they're all now looking to the federal government to say, look, you know, a lot of um, a lot of the responsibilities for the shelter system, as an example, and homelessness have been downloaded onto municipalities by the province a long time ago. And you know, they only have a certain amount of fiscal um, space. And so they're looking for some kind of you know, cash infusions from the federal government to pay for what they see is as a federal issue. How, why are we talking about this now? How has this happened now? Uh, how did this crack open up for people to fall into? It all seems to have come into clear focus thanks to a, a number of refugees and asylum seekers who have been caught in this limbo, right? They came to Canada, they were looking for help, but they were turned to the shelter system in Toronto by the federal government. The city of Toronto said, look, our shelter system is full. We have no more place to house asylum seekers. So you need to come up with more money so that we can put them somewhere and give them adequate housing. But the city of Toronto is cash strapped, as you may have been hearing. The city is you know, a billion to two billion dollars in the hole because of pandemic related uh, hangover effects. Right. Not as many people are riding the subway in Toronto. The revenue isn't coming in and we still have some pandemic related um, uh, you know, issues to pay for. And so as a result, there were a handful of people who were left stranded in the middle of downtown Toronto on the sidewalk through the rain, through late nights, um, you know, under tents, uh, really surviving thanks to the community's effort while politicians were pointing the finger at one another. So that's why this has really come into focus. And this could, you know, continue to become a larger issue for the federal government. Do you think this will be a problem this time next year when this fund, uh, these funds run out? Absolutely. I I mean, look, there's a lot of people who look at Canada as a beacon of freedom and a beacon of, uh, you know, a a good Mm -hmm. life. And so there's lots of people who look uh, or are looking to come here as well. You know, uh, you have to understand in Quebec, Roxham Road, that illegal border crossing has been largely shut down as being uh, police now. So where are people who are refugees and asylum seekers coming through. Some of them might be coming through Pearson Airport. So if they're not coming through Quebec, they're coming through Pearson. One of the first places you go to uh, might be downtown Toronto because that's where there's a concentration of a lot of services. And that's one of the reasons why we we are seeing this issue come into focus now. As the money runs out, it will continue to be a problem because Toronto has a lot of competing financial priorities and not a lot of ways to generate revenue, just like the city of Hamilton. We can't, the city can't just arbitrarily implement new taxes. It has to re- rely on the property tax base, which is stretched as is. So money is always the bottom line issue. And it seems like the higher levels of government, provincial and federal, despite having almost endless um, streams of revenue, 
aren't willing to come to Toronto's rescue all the time. So this will undoubtedly come up once again at some point down the road. The Premier and Toronto Mayor teaming up to work and try to help uh, asylum seekers and refugees. The situation in Toronto. Colin DeMello with his Queen's Park Bureau Chief, Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Colin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you so much for having me. It wasn't that long ago we were talking about the B.C. port strike and how it was over. Uh, We all stressed it was a tentative deal, and clearly it was because the union decided uh, not to agree to it after they said that uh, they had a deal. Let's bring in Christy Santini, Director of National Affairs for the Canadian Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And with us now, Christina, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. Thanks for having me. I can only imagine how this is affecting uh, small business or business of any kind. What did, what did you hear as to what the reasoning was after it looked like we had a tentative deal? In all earnesty, the same thing as you guys heard through the media, just that it wasn't accepted. We didn't hear or see too much on why and what terms weren't considered acceptable, and we feel it very disappointing that they didn't even share the deal with their membership and call a vote on it. Um, Clearly, we would hope that an agreement will be reached before the strike takes effect on Saturday, uh, because it is having a devastating impact on small businesses who just are not being able to export their merchandise and meet contractual commitments or aren't getting the products they need to deliver their services and produce things for the Canadian market. Does it seem odd to approve the tentative deal and then change your mind on it without going to a vote on it? What made them, and obviously you don't know the answers to this, it seems what made them initially say yes and then say no, but it seems odd to say yes, then no, and not take it to a vote. It does seem odd. I would agree with that, and that is definitely a question you should ask the union. Yeah. All right, so what are you hearing? Because this is the port of British Columbia, but obviously this is felt all the way across the country. Absolutely. We're hearing from our members, you know, like this uncertainty doesn't help. It doesn't help with planning, doesn't help with investments. It doesn't build confidence in Canadian businesses as exporters. Um, and of course, you know, we are hoping to export to, 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 to further markets, but it also doesn't provide them with a lot of security or um, I guess to say ability to plan for what's coming up in the next few weeks. Because when are they going to get that shipment that they were hoping to get for back to school? Um, when are they going to get the produce they were hoping to put on their store shelves, um, you know, that they had ordered in advance, but now might be falling short to uh, replenish things like rice um, or other products that we individual Canadians consume each day without really being aware of where it's coming from. Um, it is the biggest horse or the West side, ports on the west side import a huge volume of what we use every day. So we'll be feeling the impacts in a few weeks, if, that, if not already. So what, as the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, are you asking for? Do you think that there'll be legislation back to work? We are calling on government that if the two parties can come to a deal to, to use this time right now to prepare back-to-work legislation and to be ready to call Parliament back, even if it's virtually, they do have that ability now to uh, vote and go through the the back to work legislation. What do you think is going to happen between now and Saturday? I guess that's when they go back on strike, uh, and even that seems odd that it wasn't immediate. So is this? It seems like they're looking for another deal before Saturday. 
Um, and, and, you know, maybe they're looking to leverage this pressure situation. Um, but ultimately, we would hope to avoid any kind of disruptions or further disruption to the supply chain. What is government saying to you about this? They haven't said much. And are you uh, hoping to hear from them or will you be one of the last to know? We'll probably be getting to know at the same time as uh, the rest of the public uh, what's been reached. And uh, all we hope is that some agreement will come to an end. And of course, that the government then moves forward with legislation that would limit the ability for the whole supply chain and the whole Canadian economy to be held hostage to future strike actions by um, courts and other um, major transportation or telecommunication industries that are now so essential to the way we deliver services, to the way we communicate between each other. Um, We're advising and recommending that the government review its essential service policy and what it considers necessary for the maintenance of activities um, and clearly reconsider its plans to introduce legislation that would prohibit Mm. the use of replacement workers. Christina Santini with us, Director of National Affairs, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, feeling the pinch as the B.C. port strike is back on if nothing is done by Saturday. Christina, thanks for the time. Good luck. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We talk about not uh, nipping into the green belt. Lots of protests about that. I get it. Uh, and many say, politicians, there's other available land. Well, if there is, how do we have a shortage then? And why is it not developed? Or working on it now. Well, why wasn't it done, I don't know, before the pandemic? 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, why do we not have enough homes? Let's bring in Colin Best, Association of Municipalities of Ontario, and with us now. Colin, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Well, thank you, Scott. Looking forward to our discussion. So, Colin, why do we have a housing shortage? Well, it's a combination of uh, factors, uh, Scott. We have a, a record high uh, immigration. We, as you've seen with the, the stats, uh, Canada, over a million new people in Canada last year. Plus a lot of uh, challenges, both at the uh, municipal level as well as provincial and the builders. I talk to builders every week and their main concern is just getting financing, no matter what the interest rates are, as well as construction costs and labor shortages. Um, You know, we remember uh, the healthcare system prior to the pandemic and all of this that is going on that you're speaking of. And we all knew there were link uh, weak links. Uh, The people who worked there were complaining. Uh, We turned a deaf ear to it and we all puffed out our chest and said how great our healthcare system. Fast forward, a pandemic hits and boom, the wheels come off it. The issue with housing was there long before the pandemic. There was a shortage before the pandemic, there was growing prices before the pandemic. And just like with healthcare, uh, you know, this has been accentuated, all these problems accentuated with, with the pandemic and post pandemic life. So at the end of the day, why weren't we doing all this before the pandemic? Well, that's a combination of uh, issues that uh, a lot of it is that uh, it's supply and demand. If there's an adequate market, the builders will build. But unfortunately, what we're seeing is a lot of builders are holding on to land because it's just not opportune. And also, as they mentioned, it takes about 10 years to develop land from basically raw land 
into a finished uh, product. So there's a lot of issues, a lot of challenges that we all face. And that's one thing that we at uh, the Association of Municipalities of Ontario have basically been telling the province that we need to work together. You know, the province has told us we have to build more housing. We, municipalities don't build houses, builders do. We have to work together on this and it's a challenge on all levels. And I'm looking forward to working together on this. Why does it take 10 years to get it done? Well, that's a combination of, of issues depending on the location. It's taking raw land and putting it, uh, you know, in official plans, zoning bylaws, and also the servicing. The biggest concern that uh, we have at, at AMO is the province, uh, you know, they came up with the Bill 23, which cut back our development charges to the tune of almost $5.5 billion, according to our staff estimates, stating that uh, we reduce uh, development charges, which pays for all the water, the sewers, the roads, to basically fund all these new development. And if we don't do that, you know, municipalities are already in the whole, in my region alone, in Halton, next door to Hamilton, we're look, our staff are looking at $74 million loss which is enough to build two pumping stations. Municipalities say there's lots of land uh, and, and defenders of the Greenbelt say we don't need to go into it. Then why hasn't that been developed? Because clearly that 10 years is taking way too long. And uh, you know, if you want to point to that bottleneck, it's just not getting done fast enough. Well, I, I can't comment on local issues, but provincial-wide, and you can see our uh, website, we basically have told the province as well as the federal government that uh, we need funding. Because a lot of municipalities are in a situation where they cannot even uh, uh, sign a housing pledge because they just don't have the capacity for water or wastewater. So that's one thing we have to work together and have the funding where we don't have development charges or what's called an allocation program in Halton uh, to uh, fund this. Because it is a complex issue in terms of putting the servicing together and in terms of having the money you know, flowing to pay for everything. Do you think we're late to the game on this? No. How come? If we weren't late to the game, why would there be, you know, how do you explain the shortage? Give you an idea. In my uh, uh, region of Halton, I, I, I represent uh, Ward 1 in Milton. Uh, we have uh, an allocation program. We've had actually uh, uh, 1,800 housing units that were approved in 2012 that builders haven't taken up. And builders have their reasons for it, as I mentioned earlier. But it's a combination of issues that uh, a lot of times, you know, we have properties that have been approved and they're just sitting there because the builders just look at it. And actually, one builder told me yesterday that uh, the project they're building is underwater, which means the financing costs are more than what they'll get in revenue. So that's part of the challenge that they face even before the pandemic and the interest rates rise. If you don't build enough, the price of each unit goes up. It's, you know, you got 100 oranges, they sell for so much. You got 10, they're going to sell for a lot more. Uh, at what point do we stop chasing our tail and, and try to get her done? Well, that's one thing that we've asked the province to come back to us with a definition of what affordable is, because their uh, definition is doesn't meet with what we, we've been told by other uh, affordable housing experts. And we need to sit down and also have the federal government. They're the ones that you know want to increase immigration and increase the numbers. We need them at the table as well. So uh, we're looking forward to uh, our conference in on London in August, where Mayor uh, Josh Morgan is also uh, has the same predicament there. Even though they have land within their urban area, you know, builders aren't building. 
So uh, is there nothing that the municipalities can do to leverage that? Because, again, all I'm hearing, Colin, is a lot of buck passing. And, you know, it's this provincial government. And then prior to that, it was 20 years of the last provincial government. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's like a teacher strike. We keep blaming everybody and nothing gets done. Uh, we're, we're not. And actually, uh, in a number of municipalities, we're actually in Halton last uh, Wednesday, we agreed to accelerate our, our uh, allocation program and actually telling builders, if you want to build, come to the table and show us what you need and we'll provide it. And we've actually authorized $36 million for a new pumping station. So it basically takes a lot of people to sit down at the table at the same time. And I agree with you, there has been buck passing, but I'm looking at opening doors, not closing them. Colin Best with us, Association of Municipalities of Ontario, talking about housing. Colin, thanks for the time. Be well. You're welcome, Scott. Take care. All right. Uh, you know, we've been talking about housing shortage and arguing about that all afternoon, debating. Just healthy debate. Uh, now we're going to talk about um, 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 nuclear catastrophe. Uh, Ottawa has updated its plans for catastrophe due to the nuclear threat from the Ukraine war, the Russian invasion of. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Jane Bolden with us, Professor, Department of Political Science, Royal Military College, and with us now. Jane, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, thanks. How are you? Good so far. Thank you so much. What are your thoughts about this, Jane? Is this good planning or a sign of the times? What, what are your thoughts that, uh, of the uh, announcement to take a look at all of this and update? Well, I think it does reflect good planning. These kinds of um, plans and anticipation of events are always in play in government um, during the nuclear age. And so it's an update of a number of kinds of documents that deal with various aspects of potential nuclear power disaster or nuclear weapons disaster. And all of that just makes good sense in the context of what we're seeing in the Ukrainian conflict. Is this also a discussion because there's been chatter about increasing our involvement in nuclear energy? That could be um, as well a factor. I think, though, that the real prompt is probably the external one, um, especially the potential for the Ukrainian nuclear plant to have some kind of emergency. That mm. uh, wouldn't necessarily directly affect us. It's more likely to affect, um, well, not more likely, it's, it's more certainly to affect the European neighbors more directly, but it would still have an impact and it would, um, it's good policy for us to have a plan for how to deal with it. Is it all about catastrophe over there or what could happen here? It's a combination because the other part of the equation on the nuclear weapon side in particular is the very remote but nonetheless real possibility that there is some kind of nuclear strike, probably against the United States rather than us. But nonetheless, it would be hard to know that until the last minute as to who was the target. Um, and so, you know, it makes good sense to figure out a plan about how to deal with that if that kind of situation were to arise. Was this discussion happening prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Yes, but not probably with the same level of urgency, if you like. I'm hesitating about the word urgency, but mm -hmm. the, for, for sure we've been prompted perhaps sooner than we might have been to make sure those plans are up to date by the fact that we're in a situation of war um, between Ukraine and Russia and by the fact that Putin has threatened the use of nuclear weapons more than once. How does this discussion involve the Arctic? Well, in an indirect sense, 
the uh, Arctic is implicated because um, one of the possibilities is that Russia launches weapons from the Arctic over our Arctic towards the United States. Even leaving that aside, the Arctic is becoming a increasingly a zone where a variety of countries, not just Russia, um, not just the United States, are beginning to vie for um, access, um, trying to lay claims. And so there's also the potential there that there could be some kind of accident, um, either not just involving weapons, but you know, there's a lot of nuclear-powered vessels that are now traveling in the Arctic up there. When would this have last been updated? I mean, you know, we remember back to the Cold War and everybody, uh, well, it's over now. The wall's down and, and Gorbachev and Reagan are talking. It's a different era. Um, is that when this would have been last updated? Well, sometime in the post-Cold War period, um, in the last 20 years, for sure, yeah. it would have been updated. Um, and it's one of those government processes that has its own cycle. You know, you're going to update mm. it on, a, or at least you're going to look at it and see whether it needs updating on a on a regular basis. You know, every set number of years. So that's going to happen no matter what. Probably on a number of those occasions, the decision was no need to update. And what we're looking at here is okay. Situation is a bit different now. Let's update. What sort of criteria, what would be involved in the update? What what sort of issues are they covering? So from a nuclear perspective, you do a kind of a threat assessment. Um, and that's, um, as I was saying before, you know, there's two categories. There's a threat assessment relating to nuclear accidents. Um, and then there's a threat assessment that would be more directly related to conflict and war and the potential of nuclear weapons use. So you do a threat assessment, see what the um, potential possible um, events are, and look at your plans to see whether or not they're adequate for what those um, situations might entail. Does this take a defense angle, or is this all about survival? Uh, how do we take care of this disaster if it happened? I think it's more the survival side. You know, it's the nature yeah. of the nuclear age that there really isn't a lot of defense. Yeah. Um, that's built into the equation. One of the, the argument is one of the things that makes the nuclear age stable is the fact that there's no defense. Yeah. And so everybody holds back because they know that they're vulnerable. Um, so they were dis, there's a disincentive to be on the offensive because you know that the other side is going to re, be able to react and you have no defense against that reaction. On the other hand, you know, if we reach cross that boundary beyond deterrence and into use, we are in a situation, potentially anyway, where your first goal is survival. Is Putin the only threat here? No. Um, Putin's the most prominent threat at the moment, mm -hmm. but there are other nuclear weapon states, North Korea, China, who are not friends of ours, um, who are also threatening. And when we do a threat assessment, one of the things we would, the government would be doing would be making that kind of categorization. Who's our first threat? Who's the next level down? What would happen in this scenario that would make, say, our third most threatening country pop up to the top? What would we do then? 
So you're always looking at a number of contingencies and more than one player. Uh, as you said, the biggest deterrent is you pull this trigger. It may be the last one that you ever pull. Uh, China has put pressure on Russia. Don't even go there. Um, you don't want to do yeah. this. Uh, is that enough or are there enough um, uh, unstable? Is there enough unstable leadership in the world that you, you're concerned beyond normal, uh, 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 I guess, uh, uh, discussion, normal politics? No, I think it's, uh, yeah, no, it's hard to think of it as normal, isn't it? But yeah, I think, um, I think we're still in the realm of normal. Um, Putin's threats are pretty clearly just threats so far. Um, I think with the uncertainty around the Wagner Group actions a few weeks ago and the possibility that there might be instability in Russia, everybody's you know, warning signs went up a notch mm. uh, because instability in Russia could prompt a leader like Putin to make a move that he wouldn't otherwise. Um, that threat seems to have of instability internally in Russia has for the moment seems to have been staved off. Um, so I think overall we're still in the realm of the quote unquote normal. You can never discount the possibility that you might end up with an irrational leader. Mm. Uh, and there's nothing we can do about that except constantly monitor it. Dr. Jane Bolden with us, Professor, Department of Political Science, Royal Military College, Ottawa updating plans for catastrophe may be caused by nuclear threat from the Russian invasion of Ukraine and where that is heading. Jane, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. You as well. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. In this case, Rich, via email, he said, yes, we're pissed at the situation we're in with housing. And yes, politicians love their echo chamber saying how good they are doing. But the city of Hamilton has to have a long-term plan. I hope. What is it? A faithful listener. Keep right, except to pass. 911. 911. What's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship. Ah, there was an explosion. Oh my God, the ship is sinking. I can't get out. There's water everywhere. We're going down. I've got a lock on your location. Stay with me. Hurry, hurry. Hello? Are you there? Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.